0: Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode, and thanks for taking uh, maternity leave with me, taking a little break, about a month since our last episode. Uh, My husband and my dad, actually, after Lucy Regina, the newest addition to our family, arrived, they each encouraged me to take a break, and I said, no, you know, I can, I can keep going. And after thinking and praying about it and deciding to take a break, as you may have heard on the last episode, I recorded just a two-minute blip about, you know, Lucy's here, we're going to take a month off. And as I was editing that little two-minute clip and playing it back to myself, uh, my husband walked into the room, heard what was going on, and just started a slow clap way to go, way to go, babe, way to take the time off. Um, I talk a big game about keeping holy the Sabbath, about resting, about how we're human beings, we're not human doings, you know, we are not, our dignity and worth is not judged by our efficiency and productivity. But uh, personally, I have a hard time doing that. So um, so thanks for, for taking a break with me and for coming back to more reading and discussion of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. We left off previously talking about the four marks of the Catholic Church. The Church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. The Catechism next moves into the faithful, uh, Christ faithful, the hierarchy, laity, and consecrated life. So we'll focus today on the laity, the lay faithful, those who are not consecrated or ordained Um, members of the Catholic Church. And we'll talk about how we too, as lay faithful, or you might be uh, consecrated or a priest listening to this, so we'll talk about how the lay faithful um, are a big part of proclaiming the gospel and being conduits of grace. Oftentimes when we hear the word church, we think of ordained ministers, we think of nuns, we think of... um, not necessarily the laity. So we'll talk today about how the laity is part of that church, a big part of the church, and how we can, again, proclaim proclaim the gospel and then be conduits of grace. And then we'll also talk a little bit about some practical applications at the end. Um, I used to teach with a priest I've mentioned before, Father Matt Guckin, who preached one time about how his job as a priest and the role of the church um, is to bring them in, build them up, And send them out. So he said that his job as a priest is to bring people into the church, build them up, and then send them out. And again, that's also the role of the laity. Okay, we are called to gather people um, to Christ, build them up, and then send them out to proclaim the gospel, to also be conduits of grace, and then bring more people in, build them up and send them out. In order to proclaim the gospel and to bring grace to others, we must first receive it. So on today's episode, the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 871 through 900. And there's just this beautiful paragraph, paragraph 875, which talks about how we cannot preach the gospel to ourselves and we cannot bestow grace on ourselves. So first, we must receive the gospel. We must receive grace. So that we too can preach the gospel and help in the bestowal of grace. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 875 says How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? No one, no individual, and no community can proclaim the gospel to himself. Faith comes from what is heard. No one can give himself the mandate and the mission to proclaim the gospel. The one sent by the Lord does not speak and act on his own authority, but by virtue of Christ's authority, not as a member of the community, but speaking to it in the name of Christ. No one can bestow grace on himself. It must be given and offered. So that passage, faith comes from what is heard. If you're reading along in the Catechism, again, paragraph 875, look at the footnotes there. Um, You'll see that this uh, verse comes from, that, that references footnote 391, and this verse comes from Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So again, we have these great footnotes, a plethora of footnotes sprinkled throughout the catechism, referencing many times scripture, the saints, uh, documents of the Catholic Church put out by the Pope and the bishops, the magisterium, uh, among other other, uh, references. So faith comes from what is heard. No one can bestow grace on himself. It must be given and offered. I've been reflecting a lot lately on the passage found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and actually twice in the Gospel of Mark. I've been reflecting on the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. So in each of the four Gospels, it's referred to as the feeding of the 5,000. And then in the Gospel of Mark, we hear a second story about the feeding of the 4000 so thousands come from far and wide uh, to hear christ preach teach they've heard you know about his miracles his parables his teachings and as thousands are gathered around him and the day is progressing the apostles turn to him and say lord we we got to send these people away we do not have enough food to feed them let's send them out they can go get you know, get themselves something to eat and then come back. And Christ says, no, we can feed them. Uh, you know, what, what do we have on hand? And so miraculously, Christ blesses the the small amount of fish and bread that the apostles have on hand, the people have on hand, and uh, it's multiplied. So as to feed 5,000 or 4,000 in the one case. And actually, it's much more than 5,000. The Passage from the Gospel of Matthew. So it appears in Matthew chapter fourteen, verses thirteen through twenty-one, and verse twenty-one, the last line of this miracle says, "Those who ate were about five thousand men, not counting women and children." <laughs> Thanks a lot, Saint Matthew, for not including the women and children. So it's actually much more than five thousand uh, who were fed by you know these measly few loaves and fish. This is a great gospel passage. First, to talk about how. We cannot bestow grace upon ourselves. We cannot proclaim the gospel to ourselves. We see that in this passage, it's, it's uh, emblematic of, of how God works in our lives. So it starts with Christ. All those gathered there have, have gathered around Christ. Um, he then gives the mandate to his apostles. The apostles then share what Christ has given them with these thousands gathered. So it starts with God, moves through the church, and then goes out into the world. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel, and the bestowal of grace. So the world, we cannot proclaim the gospel to ourselves. We cannot bestow grace on ourselves. It must start with Christ. Um, He then institutes this church to hand on what he has imparted to the church, and then the church imparts it to the world. I was first struck by this passage about a year ago when I was was praying with Scripture. I was doing Lexio Divina one morning. And I was especially struck by the line where the apostles say to Christ, dismiss the crowds so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. So in other words, Lord, we do, we are not equipped. We do not have the resources, the capacity to feed these thousands and thousands of people. So send them out to someone or somewhere else so that they can get fed and then we'll minister to them. You know, then we can help them with the next step. And... It just resonates with me because I think I often, and I think other other people have experienced this as well. Um, when someone or some task is placed in my life, I think like, "Oh, I am not suited for this." You know, my my sister would be so much better at this, or my brother, my husband. Um, you know, my I used to think, you know, my my former colleagues, other teachers, like they could really help this person. They could really um, help facilitate this you know, what, whatever it is, project, ministry, help get this prayer answered. Um, and Christ says no. He says, there is no need for them to go away. Give them some food yourselves. There is no need for them to go away. Give them some food yourselves. Okay, Christ brings people to us. Uh, he, he could have done it, could continue to do it all on his own. He did not have to establish a church he doesn't need to use you know, our hands and feet, as the saying goes, to minister to his people. Uh, but he chooses to do so. Okay? He wants to use us. He wants to work in and through us. We who are very imperfect and who do not um, you know, always minister effectively or help uh, well the people Christ has placed in our lives. But fear not. Okay? Stop. You can do it. And God will use you. So it's easy for many of us to think, I can't do it. I'm not fit. I don't have the gifts, the talents, the strengths. Um, you know, I'll just send them to someone else. I'll recommend a priest I know or a friend, uh, a colleague who could you know, help this person a lot better or help resolve this situation. Um, and then I can you know, tag in later. Uh, the truth is you can do it and God will use you. OK, so we hear, you know, these sayings kind of thrown around about Christ has no hands but yours, no feet but yours, or you are the only Bible someone may ever read. And initially, I think some of these sayings sound a little cheesy, but they're true. OK, you, you might be the only person that your neighbor, your colleague um, ever encounters who preaches the gospel of Christ to him or her and... Um, it's not going to be perfect. We are imperfect, sinful human beings. Um, But God will use you. He'll use your circumstances, your personality traits, your gifts, your talents, your weaknesses to minister to that person or those people. And then he'll fill in the rest. He'll fill in the gaps and uh, make up for what is lacking. Because the truth is, God loves these people he places in our lives even more than we do. And he wants them in heaven. He wants them to be happy, uh, not just in the next life, but in this life even more than we do. And so he will um, use us and then make the most of it. So if you've ever thought, uh, again, you know, I'm not fit for the job. Um, I can't, you know, proclaim the gospel. I'm not a good Catholic or a Christian. Uh, take heart that while that may be true, Uh, God wants to work in and through your life and uh, wants to use you to bring others close to him. So again, take heart from this uh, gospel passage of the Feeding the 5,000, where the, the apostles say, you know, dismiss the crowds, and Christ says there is no need for them to go away. Give them some food yourselves. So in order to do that, in order to proclaim the gospel, in order to be conduits of grace, we first must be fed, be filled Uh, be proclaimed to ourselves, and be filled with grace ourselves. So how do we do that, practically speaking? First, we frequent the sacraments. So as much as we can, uh, let's go to the Eucharist. Let's receive Jesus and literally be fed by his body and blood. Uh, No matter what's going on, what you're feeling or not feeling, you are being filled up, fed, nourished, strengthened, healed, emboldened by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, by God himself. The source and summit, the beginning and end of the Christian life, and so if you're not quite paying attention during the homily, let's say your two and a half year old is uh, ducking from pew to pew to pew, and it's a little hard to concentrate, um, or let's say you know you're sitting in mass and you get distracted by you know things that that you have to accomplish at work or um, you know other tasks you have on your plate, uh, No, be confident in that when you receive the Eucharist, you are being fed by God, you're receiving his grace, which empowers you to go forth and proclaim the gospel and to be a conduit of grace for others as well. In addition to the sacrament of the Eucharist, frequent the sacrament of confession. It is a great therapy session oftentimes where the priest will give us helpful tips. Uh, We have this opportunity to unload the junk in our lives, in our hearts, our souls, our minds. And because it's a sacrament, Whether or not we feel it, we are healed, we're cleansed, we're unburdened, we're restored, refreshed, renewed. Secondly, after the sacraments, be filled by daily prayer. Um, My brother, I've mentioned before, is a Catholic priest. He preached one time and ended his homily by saying, pray as if your life depended on it, because it does. Pray as if your life depended on it, because it does. Okay. In order to live and live well, we need to connect our lives to the source of life, God himself. And if we do that on a daily basis, um, we will be guided in our decision-making, we will find rest, repose, um, we'll be strengthened, renewed, and refreshed in the Lord. If you're looking for a new or different approach to prayer, if you want to change up your prayer life. I highly recommend doing Lexio Divina. So this is an ancient practice of the church. Lectio Divina simply means divine reading. And it's a way of praying where you take uh, a small passage from the Bible, oftentimes a gospel passage, and you pray with it. So Lexio Divina is divine reading. You prayerfully read a passage of scripture. So the way you do, you pray, Lexio Divina, is by taking a small passage of scripture. I like to take the gospel passage for the day, and then you read through it a number of times, slowly reading, meditating on, praying with, and eventually contemplating that same passage. The practice of Lexio Divina is often compared to the way a cow digests its food, so these great simple, uh, analogies from life. So a cow has, you might've heard that a cow has four stomachs. A cow actually has one stomach with four compartments and what a cow will do to eat and digest its food is take a bite of cud. So let's say a bite of grass. It will chew it, swallow it, digest it in that first compartment. It will then regurgitate or you know move it up into the second compartment of the stomach where it will further digest that that cud that grass it will then regurgitate or move up into the third compartment of its stomach that bite of food and then again it will do it a fourth and final time in the fourth compartment of the stomach so it sounds funny to compare that to a type of prayer but the idea is that we take a bite of the word of God, so we take a a small passage from scripture, we then chew on it, think it over as we read it, we digest it, and then continue to read it again, digest it more, slowly consider each word or phrase or part of the passage, so that after reading it a second, a third, a fourth time, um, we've been struck by, again, a certain word, a phrase, a particular moment in that gospel passage, and God brings forth uh, beautiful insights that we wouldn't have initially necessarily gotten from that first bite or just that first read through, um, but after having spent time with it and prayerly, prayerfully considered and meditated on, contemplated that passage, uh, God brings forth new lights, new insights, and um, a beautiful understanding of, of some dimension of his truth. So there are uh, four parts to Lexio Divina. So the first part, Lexio, simply means you read the passage. The second part, Meditatio, means you meditate on it, so you think it over. Uh, Oratio is the third part. You pray with that passage. And then Contemplatio, or the fourth part, is contemplating um, the passage that you've now read a number of times. Uh, The way that I do it is I'll... I'll pray in the morning. I get up early. I try to get up before the rest of the household, and um, I'll make a cup of coffee, you know, get my Bible, my journal, my pen, and just start with a little prayer. Okay. Come, Holy Spirit, fill my heart, my mind uh, with your presence, and direct me to whatever it is you want me to see, hear, understand, consider, pray with in this passage. I'll then read the gospel passage for the day. The way that I get that is I'm on. Um, the word on fire, Bishop Barron's daily gospel reflection email, where I open up my email, um, I read. He he gives a little meditation on the passage, so I'll usually read that, and then I'll go to the actual scripture passage in my Bible, and I'll read through uh, a first time. After having read through the passage the first time, I'll then write down in my journal a word or a particular phrase that strikes me. I'll then read through a second time, praying, you know, God, if you want me to see the same phrase, the same word, uh, draw my attention to that. If there's something new, draw my attention to that, and then I'll write down anything else that that strikes me. I then look at that word or that phrase or that sentence from the gospel passage and just kind of talk to God about it. Okay, why did this strike me? Why am I focused on that particular word, that particular phrase, or that particular action of, of Christ or whoever else is in the gospel passage. And then I pray with it. I say, God, you know, how does this resonate with what's going on in my life? Um, and, you know, where do I go from here? What do you want me to do with this? So I used to do this with my my students when I taught high school, and I would often use the, the wedding feast at Cana. So that passage from the gospel of John where where Jesus and Mary go to a wedding feast, they run out of wine. Christ turns the water into wine, and you know, this the head steward comes to him and says, like, "Why did you make this fabulous wine? Or why did you bring forth this fabulous wine?" Right at the end. So, I would read through it with the kids. We go down to the chapel uh, in the school. I'd read through it out loud. I'd invite them to close their eyes and just you know listen, and then um, after having you know, read through a couple times, prayed with it. We would then go back to the classroom and I would ask them to share if they were comfortable with their experience. So uh, I would ask them, you know, what word or phrase struck you and, and a lot of students would share. And I would also ask them, and another practice of Lexio Divina is you try to imagine yourself in the passage. So imagine yourself at the wedding feast of Cana. Um, where are you at the feast? What are you doing? And then ultimately, what is Christ saying to you? um, at that moment. And so, you know, I remember this one, one class, I asked them, you know, where they pictured themselves in the passage. And, you know, different kids said, like, I was the head steward carrying the wine. I was the bride being married. I was, um, you know, a guest just observing, uh, what was going on. And I had this one student one year, she raised her hand and she said, um, I pictured myself as Jesus, the one performing the miracle. <laughs> and the other kids in the class were like, "Um, can she do that? Can she be Jesus?" So it's a uh, it's you know a beautiful way to pray. It's a beautiful way to use your imagination too, and, and picture um, picture the sights and the sounds and the smells of of God who became incarnate, stepped into our human timeline, uh, so as to interact with us and and draw us close to Him. So, um, if you are looking for a new way to pray. I invite you to try Lexio Divina this week. So find uh, a quiet moment, a quiet few moments, depending on on your schedule and what works best for your life, and uh, just take some time for us to invite the Holy Spirit to fill your heart and mind. Uh, crack open your Bible and read the gospel passage for the day and then after reading it a couple times just note what word what phrase jumps out at you try to picture the passage picture yourself in the passage and then ultimately what is Christ saying to you through his word this living word of god that is not just you know a letter that was written uh, thousands of years ago and enshrined in this book the bible but it's the, the living word of god active in our lives god wants to to speak to us in our particular circumstances um, in the, the trials and, and joys and sufferings of our lives and, and help us uh, draw closer to him and, and lead us down the beautiful path he has laid for each and every one of us. So give that a try this week. See, see what, what God might be saying to you in and through that passage and uh, allow him to proclaim the gospel to you through this, this prayer, through the sacraments, um, so that you too can go forth and proclaim the gospel and be a conduit of the grace that you also have received. We'll end the first half of our episode there, take a brief break, and then return on the second half to continue our reading with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Today we'll continue with paragraphs 871 through 900. Thanks so much for sticking with me. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 871 through 900. Paragraph 4, Christ's Faithful, Hierarchy, Laity, Consecrated Life. The Christian faithful are those who, inasmuch as they have been incorporated in Christ through baptism, have been constituted as the people of God. For this reason... Since they have become sharers in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and royal office in their own manner, they are called to exercise the mission which God has entrusted to the Church to fulfill in the world, in accord with the condition proper to each one. In virtue of their rebirth in Christ, there exists among all the Christian faithful a true equality with regard to dignity and the activity whereby all cooperate in the building up of the body of Christ, in accord with each one's own condition and function." The very differences which the Lord has willed to put between the members of his body serve its unity and mission. For in the church there is diversity of ministry, but unity of mission. To the apostles and their successors, Christ has entrusted the office of teaching, sanctifying, and governing in his name and by his power. But the laity are made to share in the priestly, prophetical, and kingly office of Christ. They have, therefore, in the church and in the world, their own assignment in the mission of the whole people of God. Finally, from both groups, hierarchy and laity, there exist Christian faithful who are consecrated to God in their own special manner and serve the salvific mission of the church through the profession of the evangelical councils. The Hierarchical Constitution of the Church Why the Ecclesial Ministry? Christ is himself the source of ministry in the church. He instituted the church. He gave her authority and mission, orientation and goal. In order to shepherd the people of God and to increase its number without cease, Christ the Lord set up in his church a variety of offices which aim at the good of the whole body. The holders of office, who are invested with a sacred power, are in fact dedicated to promoting the interests of their brethren so that all who belong to the people of God may attain to salvation. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can men preach unless they are sent? No one, no individual and no community, can proclaim the gospel to himself. Faith comes from what is heard. No one can give himself the mandate and the mission to proclaim the gospel. The one sent by the Lord does not speak and act on his own authority, but by virtue of Christ's authority. Not as a member of the community, but speaking to it in the name of Christ. No one can bestow grace on himself. It must be given and offered. This fact presupposes ministers of grace, authorized and empowered by Christ. From him, bishops and priests receive the mission and faculty, the sacred power, to act in persona Christi Capitis. Deacons receive the strength to serve the people of God in the diaconia of liturgy, word, and charity, in communion with the bishop and his presbyterate. The ministry in which Christ's emissaries do and give by God's grace what they cannot do and give by their own powers is called a sacrament by the church tradition. Indeed, the ministry of the church is conferred by a special sacrament. Intrinsically linked to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry is its character as service. Entirely dependent on Christ who gives mission and authority, ministers are truly slaves of Christ, in the image of him who freely took the form of a slave for us. Because the word and grace of which they are ministers are not their own, but are given to them by Christ for the sake of others, they must freely become the slaves of all. Likewise, it belongs to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry that it have a collegial character. In fact, from the beginning of this ministry, the Lord Jesus instituted the twelve as the seeds of the new Israel and the beginning of the sacred hierarchy. Chosen together, they were also sent out together, and their fraternal unity would be at the service of the fraternal communion of all the faithful. They would reflect and witness to the communion of the divine persons. For this reason, every bishop exercises his ministry from within the Episcopal College in communion with the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter and head of the college. So also, priests exercise their ministry from within the Presbyterium, of the diocese, under the direction of their bishop. Finally, it belongs to the sacramental nature of ecclesial ministry that it have a personal character. Although Christ's ministers act in communion with one another, they also always act in a personal way. Each one is called personally. You, follow me, in order to be a personal witness within the common mission, to bear personal responsibility before him who gives the mission, acting in his person and for other persons. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I absolve you. Sacramental ministry in the church, then, is a service exercised in the name of Christ. It has a personal character and a collegial form. This is evidenced by the bonds between the Episcopal College and its head, the successor of St. Peter, and in the relationship between the bishop's pastoral responsibility for his particular church and the common solicitude of the Episcopal College for the universal church the Episcopal College, and its head, the Pope. When Christ instituted the Twelve, he constituted them in the form of a college or permanent assembly, at the head of which he placed Peter, chosen from among them. Just as, by the Lord's institution, St. Peter and the rest of the apostles constitute a single apostolic college, so in like fashion the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, and the bishops, the successors of the apostles, are related with and united to one another. The Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the pope. The Pope, Bishop of Rome and Peter's successor, is the perpetual and visible source and foundation of the unity both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful. For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as Vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire Church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole Church, a power which he can always exercise unhindered. The college, or body of bishops, has no authority unless united with the Roman pontiff, Peter's successor, as its head. As such, this college has supreme and full authority over the universal church, but this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff. The college of bishops exercises power over the universal church in a solemn manner in an ecumenical council, but there never is an ecumenical council which is not confirmed or at least recognized as such by Peter's successor. This college, insofar as it is composed of many members, is the expression of the variety and universality of the people of God, and of the unity of the flock of Christ, insofar as it is assembled under one head. The individual bishops are the visible source and foundation of unity in their own particular churches. As such, they exercise their pastoral office over the portion of the people of God assigned to them, assisted by priests and deacons. But, as a member of the Episcopal College, each bishop shares in the concern for all the churches. The bishops exercise this care first by ruling well their own churches as portions of the universal church, and so contributing to the welfare of the whole mystical body, which, from another point of view, is a corporate body of churches. They extend it especially to the poor, to those persecuted for the faith, as well as to missionaries who are working throughout the world. Neighboring particular churches who share the same culture form ecclesiastical provinces or larger groupings called patriarchates or regions. The bishops of these groupings can meet in synods or provincial councils. In a like fashion, the Episcopal conferences at the present time are in a position to contribute in many and fruitful ways to the concrete realization of the collegiate spirit. The Teaching Office Bishops, with priests as co-workers, have as their first task to preach the gospel of God to all men, in keeping with the Lord's command. They are heralds of faith who draw new disciples to Christ. They are authentic teachers of the apostolic faith, endowed with the authority of Christ. In order to preserve the church in the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, Christ, who is the truth, will to confer on her a share in his own infallibility." By a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God, under the guidance of the church's living magisterium, unfailingly adheres to this faith. The mission of the magisterium is linked to the definitive nature of the covenant established by God with his people in Christ. It is this magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. Thus, the pastoral duty of the magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. The exercise of this charism takes several forms. The Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibility in virtue of his office. When, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, He proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. The infallibility promised to the Church is also present in the body of bishops, when, together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium, above all in an ecumenical council. When the Church, through its supreme magisterium, proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. Divine assistance is also given to the successors of the apostles, teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, and in a particular way to the bishop of Rome, pastor of the whole church, when, without arriving at an infallible definition and without pronouncing it a definitive manner, they propose, in the exercise of the ordinary magisterium, a teaching that leads to better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals. To this ordinary teaching, the faithful are to adhere to it with religious assent, which though distinct from the assent of faith, is nonetheless an extension of it. The sanctifying office. The bishop is the steward of the grace of the supreme priesthood, especially in the Eucharist, which he offers personally, or whose offering he assures through the priests, his co-workers. The Eucharist is the center of the life of the particular church. The bishop and priest sanctify the church by their prayer and work, by their ministry of the word and of the sacraments. They sanctify her by their example, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Thus, together with the flock entrusted to them, they may attain to eternal life. The Governing Office The bishops, as vicars and legates of Christ, govern the particular churches assigned to them by their counsels, exhortations, and example. But over and above that, also by the authority and sacred power, which indeed they ought to exercise so as to edify, in the spirit of service, which is that of their master. The power which they exercise personally, in the name of Christ, is proper, ordinary, and immediate, although its exercise is ultimately controlled by the supreme authority of the Church. But the bishops should not be thought of as vicars of the Pope. His ordinary and immediate authority over the whole church does not annul, but on the contrary confirms and defends that of the bishops. Their authority must be exercised in communion with the whole church under the guidance of the pope. The good shepherd ought to be the model and form of the bishop's pastoral office. Conscious of his own weaknesses, the bishop can have compassion for those who are ignorant and erring. He should not refuse to listen to his subjects whose welfare he promotes as of his very own children. The faithful should be closely attached to the bishop as the church is to Jesus Christ and as Jesus Christ is to the Father. Let all follow the bishop as Jesus Christ follows his Father and the college of presbyters as the apostles. Respect the deacons as you do God's law. Let no one do anything concerning the church in separation from the bishop. The lay faithful. The term laity is here understood to mean all the faithful except those in holy orders and those who belong to religious state approved by the church. That is, the faithful who by baptism are incorporated into Christ and integrated into the people of God are made sharers in their particular way in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ and have their own part to play in the mission of the whole Christian people in the church and in the world. The vocation of lay people. By reason of their special vocation, it belongs to the laity to see the kingdom, excuse me, to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. It pertains to them in a special way so as to illuminate and order all temporal things with which they are closely associated, that these may always be affected and grow according to Christ and may be to the glory of the creator and redeemer. The initiative of lay Christians is necessary, especially when the matter involves discovering or inventing the means for permeating social, political, and economic realities with the demands of Christian doctrine and life. This initiative is a normal element of the life of the church. Lay believers are in the front line of church life. For them, the church is the animating principle of human society. Therefore, they in particular ought to have an ever clearer consciousness not only of belonging to the church, but of being the church that is to say, the community of the faithful on earth, under the leadership of the Pope, the common head, and of the bishops in communion with him. They are the church. Since, like all the faithful, light Christians are entrusted by God with the ap- excuse me the apostolate by virtue of their baptism and confirmation, they have the right and duty, individually or grouped in associations, to work so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all men throughout the earth. This duty is the more pressing when it is only through them that men can hear the gospel and know Christ. Their activity in ecclesial communities is so necessary that for the most part, the apostle of the pastors cannot be fully effective without it. This brings us to the end of our reading of our catechism selection for the day. Uh, You heard my little counterpart, Lucy Regina, make a little sound right at the end there. Um, She's been sleeping next to me as we've been been uh, chatting and reading. So thanks for joining me for another episode of Catholic Light. Um, In between this episode and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. Uh, Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.